millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Just before we get started, I wanted to let you know about my new Patreon site, which helps to support the making of this podcast, which will always be free. By signing up to Patreon, You get to show your support and get your hands on fascinating new videos, different videos, every week, much more besides. That's Neil Oliver on Patreon. I'll hope to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. It's all about people coveting stuff that other people have and going to any lengths to get their hands on it. How modern is that? How ancient is that? It's both. In this podcast, we're following in the footsteps of the ultra-powerful Hanseatic League, whose strength and influence began to crystallise in the late 1100s. Craftsmen of the guilds, or Hansa as they were called, flexed their economic might and by the 13th century had spun rich trading routes from the Baltic to the British Isles. The League brought great wealth and development. The Norfolk town of Lynn became the third most important port in England. And hand in glove with the League, they helped them dominate trade across Northern Europe for over three centuries. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me, and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi, Neil. Last week we walked with you across the elemental beauty of Morecambe Bay treacherous and stunning in the same breath. Where are we now? This week we're following the money, Paul. Uh, In the 13th and 14th centuries, great wealth and international influence flowed across Northern Europe in the form of the Hanseatic League's trading routes, uh, much of it making its way to the British Isles. We're in the town of Kings Lynn, specifically at St George's Guildhall and the Hansa House. Uh, we're in lovely King's Lynn in Norfolk. Norfolk's that part of England, of Britain, that it, it, it does feel remote. I've been there many times for filming of one thing or another, and it's a long way. It's funny, always takes me by surprise. 
So we're in King's Lynn. What the love letter is about today is something that's it's so modern in many ways. So much of what we're going to talk about, the fact that it was happening 800 years ago, would just blow your mind because it's so instantly recognisable in today's world. Specifically, we're talking about the Hanseatic League. And the Hanseatic League was a, a supranational trading bloc based in Europe. And it was merchants, craftspeople who had formed guilds. You know, people still have guilds of, of craftspeople and various trades and crafts come together and people form guilds to protect what they're doing and, and to discuss what they're doing. Well, the word in play in the sort of northern Europe was Hansa. That's what gives us the Hanseatic League. So it was craftspeople, trading people had formed guilds and then the guilds came together as the Hanseatic League, the League of Guilds. And it was to facilitate trade. So from sort of the 1100s onwards, you've got a European trading bloc and the rules transcended national borders. So the tradespeople and the merchants and the craftsmen, the decisions they were taking went across the borders of the countries that they were within. Now, how much does that remind you of the European Union? Yeah. Which was brought together really originally for trading purposes, the common market. And yet to say that European Union is not the first time that people in Europe have thought about coming together in that way is putting it lightly. It really started with Vikings. Now, we've discussed Vikings' behaviour in the love letter already, you know, specifically places like Lindisfarne, where they left their first bloody handprints, the slaughter of the monks at the Holy Island, Brocha Bursi, up in the far north of Scotland, where they, they displaced the local Pictish community and came to stay. So we've talked about how the Vikings were getting about. Well, the Swedish Vikings, those coming out of what we know as Sweden, in the main, they weren't coming to Britain. In the main, they were going across the Baltic in their longships, and they were heading for what we would know as Northern Europe, but then they got into the, the rivers, like the Volga, that took them into what becomes Russia. And because they were such efficient mariners, they could cover huge distances because their, their ships were designed such that if they ran into shallow water or any other obstacle, the big strong boys that were the crew, they could just pick the boat up and roll it on logs over land until they got to the next river or whatever and keep going. So their reach was limited only by their ambition and their courage, really. They could keep on going. And so in that way, these Swedish Vikings penetrated deep into what we know as Russia. And the very name Russia comes from them because the people who encountered them, the people who saw them, who experienced them coming down the rivers, called them the Rus. R-U-S, which means something like the men who row. I've actually speculated for no reason, but it's just, you know, in my imagination. The sound Rus, Rus, Rus. I've even wondered if it was what people heard of the oars in the water before they even saw them. But in any event, they called them the Rus. And Rus eventually gives its name to Russia. 
Okay, the first three letters of Russia are Rus, and those Rus, those Swedish Vikings, they came to dominate a whole swatch of territory around the town of Kiev. They founded more or less Kiev in what is now Ukraine, but in time, the very idea of Russia comes from them. And of course, those Vikings were all about trade. That's really what was motivating them. They were going out into the wider world in search of things. They brought things with them, things from their own world, furs and the rest. And they were looking to exchange it for other things they wanted, like slaves, like silver, coinage, various commodities that they were after. But they were driven by by trade. And what formed out of that was what became the nations and the trades and the crafts that became the Hanseatic League. So that tradition of trading that was really driven in large part by those Swedish Vikings, the Rus, the men who rule, that was the very beginnings, that was the very deepest foundations of what comes next. And really from about the 13th century onwards, the craftsmen and the the merchants of these guilds started to forge links with one another. And eventually what they had going stretched from the city of Lübeck, it's northern Germany now, uh, on the Baltic, as far east as Novgorod, and then as far west as the British Isles. There's a fascinating little detail, actually. William Wallace, Battle of Stirling Bridge, Braveheart sort of stuff. The Battle of Stirling Bridge was in 1297, and it was a great victory for, for William Wallace. In fact, it was it was his his victory, really. It was the victory that made him immortal. And in the immediate aftermath of it, he sent a letter, or it was written in his name, it was signed off by him. It was written in the town of Haddington, which is in East Lothian, over in the east of Scotland. And it was sent to the leaders of the Hanseatic League, basically saying, on account of our victory, Scotland is now open for business (laughs) with, with the Hanseatic League. So, you know, when you think about how, say, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is all about rejoining the European Union, well... William Wallace behaved in exactly the same way at the end of the 13th century. The first thing he did as a leader was to send a letter to the Hanseatic League saying, here we are, here's Scotland, and we're available for business. It's such a fantastic name, the Hanseatic League, isn't it? Sounds like it's straight out of a Hollywood movie. It does. It does. Well, they had all sorts of ambitions. You know, they they were able to protect themselves because there was a lot of money at stake because it was big. And so they, they were able to take steps to protect their ships. Be going a bit far to say that they had a private army or anything, but they were aware of the necessity to protect themselves. And because they had money, they had influence. If it makes you think of something like The Sopranos or something, or the, or a, or the Mafia, or, or I mean, that's all about it, making money. There's a violent undertone, but basically what organised crime is all about is, is making a lot of money from commodities that people want, legal or otherwise. You know, that's how that's done. And so there, there is an edge to which the Hanseatic League were so big that they became influential. During the Wars of the Roses, for example, we've talked about the Wars of the Roses, in the love letter. Well, the the Hanseatic League financed 
the Yorkist cause. Edward IV, the, the victor of Towton, you know, that great charnel house of a battle. He was the, the preeminent Yorkist leader, Yorkist king. Well, the Hanseatic League backed his side of the Wars of the Roses. So you, you get a sense of the way they were, like the European Union does, you know, it starts to, starts to meddle. You know, it goes beyond trade and starts getting into things political. Well, so did the Hanseatic League as long ago as 800 years. Now, finally, that brings us to King's Lynn. Now, at the time, in the 13th and 14th and 15th century, it was just known as Lynn, L-Y-N-N. It was founded on the River Great Ouse, where it flows into the Wash on the east coast of England. And in 1204, it was given royal charter by King John. King John was the monarch who was persuaded to put his seal on Magna Carta. That was the 13th century. And during the 14th century, Lynn became the third most important port in England. And it was one of only seven in the whole country that were part of the Hanseatic League. And the clout of the League meant that members or leaders of the individual guilds could expect their voices to be heard when it came to negotiations about international trade agreements. So when links were being forged between European countries, the leaders, the spokespeople for the guilds within the Hanseatic League had enough clout so that they could speak or make representations so that their needs and their wants were considered within those international trade agreements. So Lynn became incredibly busy. So you've got people coming from all over Northern Europe what was arriving, what Britain wanted was herring, the fish, iron, metal, pitch, timber and wax. So that was coming in in ships into King's Lynn. And out of King's Lynn was going cloth, grain, lead, wood and animal skins. So there's commodities coming in, commodities going out. Um, and so it's not, even as though the, it's not even as though the Hanseatic League were the first. You know, the, the Romans, for example... 2,000 years ago, they dominated trade in the Mediterranean Sea. You know, they were so big that they were able to elbow everybody else out of the way. Well, the Hanseatic League exercised the same kind of dominance uh, over the north, over the Baltic, and that strip of territory from east to west. But they weren't really about force. I mean, there was even talk within the Hanseatic League of having a, a, a unified currency. It never happened, but conversations were had about the way in which things would be easier if they didn't have to worry about whose currency it was happening in, pounds or whatever else. That's how modern was the thinking of the people within the Hanseatic League. So the wonder, I mean, the beauty of going to King's Lynn is the buildings of the Hanseatic League are still there, or two of them are. Merchants from foreign countries were given the right to build warehouses in places like King's Lynn. And it was like diplomatic immunity. Inside those buildings, where maybe a German trader had his stock, it was effectively untouchable. Within his warehouse, it was like a little bit of Germany. Not quite as sophisticated as that, but it was in that territory. So different merchants would have their warehouses in the countries of different nations and they could absolutely, 100% expect that their cargoes and stock would be treated with respect. 
you know, nobody would go in and meddle with it, nobody would steal it. There was that level of international understanding. So there's two buildings that you can go and see that are still there in King's Lynn. On St Margaret's Lane, there's a structure called the Hanseatic Warehouse. It's also known as the Hansa House. And it was built around 1480 by some of these foreign merchants who'd been given permission to have a structure where their stock would effectively be under their rules. And elsewhere in the town, there's St George's Guildhall, and that's on King Street in Kingsland. It was built in 1406. Now, it's 100 feet long, nearly 30 feet wide, and two storeys high. It's a double-decker, and it's the largest and most complete of its kind in the whole of the country. And the guilds would come together for meetings in the guild hall. It was also used for entertainment. So when the guild didn't need it, other people would borrow the space. William Shakespeare is supposed to have performed one of his own productions in there in 1593. I mean, that's how long these places were in operation. You know, this was a thing that had been built in the early part of the 15th century. And towards the end of the 16th century, it was still up and running and performing its original function. So the Hanseatic League runs for hundreds of years. It operates for hundreds of years. And Britain only, and Britain did, begin to lose interest in the Hanseatic League once the New World was discovered. So, obviously, in the 15th century, the 16th century, first of all, Spain and Portugal established colonies in South America and Central America. And then, as time goes on, obviously, other countries, Britain included, had colonies in North America. And so, Britain's priorities swung 180 degrees in the opposite direction. So, having had hundreds of years where the priority was trade to the east, i.e. to the European continent, once the new world was discovered with great wealth potential, silver and, and other wonderful commodities, all the focus switched to the new world and we turned our backs on the Hanseatic League. And so that idea of there coming a point where a lucrative trading bloc no longer seemed to be the best thing for Britain. Well, what's just happened? Brexit. Brexit, because too many people felt that, for a whole cocktail of reasons, that Britain would be better off striking trade deals independently elsewhere. Well, that was mirrored with the Hanseatic League because there came a point where Britain thought, not so much. Hanseatic League, not so useful. And all our attention swung away to the West. But at its height, the League must have been very profitable. Yeah, in a single year, uh, well, just over a year, between July 1322 and October 1323, £6,000 worth of trade moved in and out of King's Lynn. Now, that's £6,000 in the 16th century. That's a colossal sum of money. That's millions of pounds worth of stock in modern terms moving through that town. So the scale of it, it's so modern. The ambition, the vision, the reach, the sophistication, the understanding that trade was bigger than nations, that its deeds were supranational, that it transcended national borders and boundaries... Anyone that thinks that that was the European Union that thought all of that up, it so wasn't. Everything from the Euro to the European Union to the European Council to the Commission to the Parliament, it was all there before and hundreds of years before. staggering amounts of wealth was flowing along these trade routes into Britain. Huge, huge. 
wealth. But what has there ever been in the world that has motivated people like trading opportunities? That's why wars are fought. Wars happen, but but it's because, in so many occasions, it's because people think that their opportunity and their freedom to make money at the national level has been compromised by another nation's politics, and you know, and things go from talking to to fighting. But it's trade and money that make the world go round. We've always known it, and it's been like that for centuries. But it's the wars that get the headlines and are remembered, isn't it? And the everyday business and impact of trade is forgotten. Yeah, you do, you overlook it. I mean, the Middle East has been so hot for so long, so much trouble, so much grief for so many people, and obviously religion is part of the mix. But more than anything else, in the 20th century, it's been about the oil. Because people want access to that commodity. Yes, the wars are fought in the Middle East for all sorts of reasons, a whole complicated political cocktail. But if there was no oil in the Middle East, the countries of the West wouldn't be involved and wouldn't be involved in in so much trouble. It's oil, it's trade, it's wealth, it's money. Do the Guildhall and Hansa House have a European architectural style? I, well, I mean, what strikes me, they just look of the period. There are these islands of the 15th century surrounded by 21st century Norfolk. You're looking at timber buildings and so they, they stand out to me and they catch my eye because they look 500 years old rather than whether they reflect the architectural tastes of Flemish people or, or German people or a trader from Lübeck. But they're eye-catching and atmospheric because they are islands of that time, surrounded by the modern world. Would traders from Europe have been living in Kings Lynn? Yeah, the traders were coming and going. A place like Lynn or Kings Lynn would have been a multicultural, probably stretching things a bit. But you would have heard other languages. Of course you would. Uh, you know, and you would have, and, and people from the Baltic states, you know, would have been there, living there, putting in time while they, while they came to oversee and to, and to take care of their business dealings. Yes, absolutely. I think sometimes it's easy to forget just how international, especially the east of England was, because, you know, the east of England and the south of England faces the European continent. And for, never mind hundreds of years, for thousands of years, I mean, we've talked before about Joseph of Arimathea, hypothetically being a metal trader and coming into the the Bristol Channel and and going to places like Glastonbury, let's say, 2,000 years ago. And if not him, then the Phoenicians were coming to Cornwall to trade for tin 3,000 years ago. And the Romans were coming for slaves, for Irish wolfhounds, for gold, and for all of the rest of it. And Britain has had international European connections forever. For the longest time, before the Sturega slide, we were physically connected to Europe. That connection, even though it was submerged by what became the English Channel and the the eastern part of the North Sea, has always been there. And just because people could no longer walk across, the connections were there, and so they picked them up again by boat. And places like Lynn and all down the eastern seaboard, you'd always have heard foreign voices and encountered foreign people, fisherfolk, traders... That's as old as any vessel that was capable of of making that journey across the water. 
and the Hanseatic League was just a development and an, in- an intensification and a sophistication of links that were already well-established and already ancient. Fascinating how the importance and power of places like King's Lynn ebb and flow through history, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it always makes me think about the fact that we we talked about the Nessa Brodger in Orkney and how 5,000 years ago you were looking at a, a capital, a British capital, that if people in Europe were aware of, of places in the British archipelago, the Nessa Brodger, whatever they called it, would have been one of those as would Stonehenge, as would Silbury Hill. People in the European continent would have known about those places and, and where possible might have made their pilgrimages or made their journeys there. Amesbury Archer, the individual that we know had come from you know, south of the Pyrenees and lived out his life within sight of Stonehenge. People were always coming and other places had that gravitational pull. Well, at the time of the Hanseatic League, King's Lynn was a centre of gravity and people on the European continent would have known about it. You'd have heard it mentioned in Lübeck and Novgorod because it was part of the Hanseatic League. And so these places that feel like quite remote, you have to make a bit of an effort to get into Norfolk, even from within England. Well, that's how we perceive Norfolk. At other times, Lynn's convenient location on the River Great Ouse, on the Wash, on the trading networks meant it wasn't on the edge of anything. It was right at the centre. Today's geography has such a strong imprint on us, it's hard to imagine it being different. Yeah. You always think that in your own time, you think the ideas are new. Like the European Union, you think that's a a 20th century confection, you know, which to some extent it is, but it's just the latest version of something that was tried hundreds of years before. It's like a splash of cold water to the face when you encounter these things because you think, God, there's nothing. There's it's, all. All we've got is sort of better technology. You know, we can do it. We can, our connections are virtual and online and electronic and all the rest of it. But that desire to be in touch with people who've got something that you want, t- to the extent that you will go to the ends of the earth, literally, to establish the connections so that you can get that to where you live. And in order to facilitate it, you have to look around where you are and think, and what can I give them in return? I'll give you this, you give me that. That quid pro quo of trade, it's as old as old. The, the, we talked elsewhere in the, in the love letter about the, the Langdale axes that travelled all over the British archipelago. It's because people realise, these are fantastic, got to get me one of them. And so the trading links were established to move it around. The copper, the tin, it's all about people coveting stuff that other people have and going to any lengths to get their hands on it. How modern is that? How ancient is that? It's both. It's fascinating to see these connections between people. Folk from 15th century King's Lynn hanging out with people from the Baltic. Yeah, and people would have been used to... They wouldn't have been surprised by the presence of aliens in their midst and wouldn't have regarded them as such because their, their accents and their, their look, their clothes, they'd have seen them around. And some of them would have spoken the languages. That international element would always have been there. 
This is very much my home turf, a place I know and love. The silver brooch that hitches the highlands of Scotland to the lowlands. Sitting atop a crag and tail left over from our geological past is a powerful castle. A place whose influence stretches right across the history of the British Isles. Brutal, defiant and also beautiful. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and get access to new and exclusive videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account. It's called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.